You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew Beer and I, Niels Kastrolarsen, where each week we take the polls of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Andrew, great to be back with you uh, this week. How are you keeping? Where do I find you today? Oh, I'm I'm back in the New York area, and thank you. So it's, it's it's great to be back here. I really appreciate the uh, the the invitation to return. So you're watching, following the U.S. Open, I imagine, or not? I'm not. I was a huge tennis fan. I played tennis all my my, my whole youth. I for some reason I just stopped having any interest in sports about about five years ago, and so I'm in this embarrassing state now when people talk about the stuff. I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about anymore. I, I I'm I'm unbelievably good with baseball in the US up until about 1985 and then it then I kind of go dark. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyways, we've got a great conversation lined up uh today, but before we do that, before we dive into all the topics, we we uh, or oh, I like to just uh, ask sort of uh, what are you keeping an eye on um at the moment? What's been on your radar? Any particular things you see happening around the world that you think might be interesting? Well, I I I think the most interesting thing is the fact that it looks like rates are not going down soon, um, and and I think you know I think the whole dynamic of rising rates, you had vast portions of the asset management industry that were desperately hoping, like I mean as as rules based investor you know how bad it is to hope that a trade that is going against you is 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 not going to continue to go against you that it's going to reverse, and you know it's the worst heuristic bias that people have when it comes to investing. Um, I think Warren Buffett said it's like uh, it's like well, you know watering your your watering your weeds and cutting your flowers or something to that effect. Um, and and the thing is like the entire asset management industry, uh, every pension plan, every family office, every RIA, every you know wealth management firm is is ha- has built their businesses around an inverse correlation between stocks and bonds. It looks like that's over, and people have been because because there's not it's not clear what they do. So what I'm to, to me that I'm I'm really interested in is this kind of dawning realization, but people aren't really thinking through the implications of it. We can talk about it more because I think it's the I think it is actually the single greatest selling point for managed futures over the next decade. Um, and 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 you, you will certainly hear me, uh, uh, you know, once or twice talking about it. Okay, well, we'll definitely talk about that. Um, before I forget, because I've reached that age that if I don't say things as soon as I remember them, then I might forget them. But I will say, you you mentioned this word that the correlation had changed, or or you, you I can't remember exactly the words you used. But the funny part is, of course, uh, Andrew, is that it hasn't changed, meaning we've just gone back to the way it normally is, but hasn't been for the last 20 years. I think that's the key thing, uh, which actually goes to your point about, well, it might actually stick around like this for 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 a while. So anyway, we'll come to that. I think your point about the bonds, uh, I spoke to Katie Kaminsky last week, she was on, and um, I think that's also uh, uh, something really worth paying attention to, that, that that people really hope that bond prices will start going up, but we've had another week where they've gone down again, and that's going to be putting pressure on certain things. Uh, I also find personally that uh, same could be said about the dollar. People have been talking so long about how the dollar will demise and it'll fall off a cliff. Yet we're sitting at six months high right now. 
interesting dynamics. And finally, and I don't follow this closely, but I hear people talk about the GDP now numbers looking incredibly strong at the moment. I know some of it is taking July, I think, and then sort of putting that out into the future so it may change. But but still, there's a lot of narrative that doesn't add up to the to the facts, which is really interesting. In what way do you mean? Well, because I think people are saying, well, the economy is much, uh, you know, struggling uh, at the moment. And yet the numbers that are coming in are suggesting that this may or may not be the case. So that's what I thought. I think, but I think, I think that's, I think a lot of people, it's hope, right? I mean, I mean you really hope that there's going to be this decline in economic activity. Inflation's going to come down another couple of points. Nobody knows, right? And 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 it just, but it just, you look at kind of the bigger things. You look at deglobalization. You look at real interest rates have gone positive. They're kind of supposed to be positive, right? They're not, they're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to have negative real interest rates for long periods of time. You're not supposed to have $18 trillion of negative real bonds. So I think your point is that people grew up in an abnormal world. It's returning to normal and they're having a really hard time making sense of it because a lot of people's businesses and livelihoods and success was built on a very, 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 very strange, uh, uh, you know, artificial situation. Yeah, true. Yes, which reminds me about uh, a podcast I was listening to the other day. I can't remember which one. Um, but again, where you just hear the narrative, well, let's just wait until bond yields go back to normal around, you know, 2 or 3% when I'm thinking, well, well, that's not normal. I mean, I've been around long enough to know that that definitely isn't normal. So anyways. It's, uh, old old yeah. guys unite. <laughs> uh, yeah, old guys <laughs> unite. Have, exactly. Oh my memories. God. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, from a trend following perspective, just before we dive into the topics, I completely forgot to look up where the performance is coming from, but September is looking pretty good, actually. Uh, maybe you know where your, your your performance may be coming from, but actually September so far looks pretty good, uh, although my own trend barometer is still not kicking, you know, it's not sort of firing on all cylinders, but it has increased in the last week or so. Um, but anyways, for the industry, and we don't even have Thursday numbers uh, in here, but up 1.46% for the beta 50 for September, up 36 basis points so far for the year. Uh, SG uh, CTA index, which will be very relevant to you, of course, up 1.77% for September, up a fraction, 17 basis points for the year. Shock Gen trend up about 2% for the month, uh, and now it's only down about 40 uh, basis points for the year. And the short-term traders index uh, up just shy of 1%, but still down 2.5% for the year. Equities so far this month down 2.59% for MSCI World, but up 14.6% for the year. World government bonds down another 75 basis points this month, and the S&P 500 was down as of yesterday, one and a quarter percent, still up just shy of 16% so far this year. All right, Andrew, you sent over to me uh, some really great talking points. But I want to begin with an article that you just published in the prestigious, I will say, publication called Institutional Investor. So first of all, congratulations for, for getting that uh, published. It's titled, Why Managed Futures Funds Are Ripe for Replication. That's how it starts. And then it goes on to say, research shows that replication rather than investments in single manager hedge funds may make sense for most allocators, writes Andrew Beer. Okay, of course I am when I see a headline like that. I'm curious to learn what research <laughs> you what research you may have found yeah. 
to, uh, or maybe conducted yourself, of course, to make such a bold claim that most investors would be better off investing uh, in a product like yours. Of course, I'm a little bit cheeky when I say that. So let's dive into this for a little bit. Uh, and then we've got a lot of sub points we want to discuss. Sure. So, so, so first of all, I didn't actually choose the title. So, uh, what happens is when you submit these things, um, okay. uh, my, my, you know, I, I, I can write in a somewhat punchy way what I want to, um, but it was actually, um, uh, it, it was title. my title was a little bit. It was a little calmer. It was more about yeah. about about you know kind of the nature of replication of of managed futures funds. And I, the reason mm -hmm. I wrote it was because um, there's. A, Earlier this year, we had a bad f first quarter, right? We had a great, you know, generally a very good 20. I mean, when you look at kind of what we've done since 2016, when we started doing it, we've outperformed in every year. We kind of matched in one year, but every other year we outperformed um, 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 the index. And, and we did it with a correlation around 0.9. And then the first quarter this year, right, after this great year of success, we underperformed. And what it did was it opened up these attacks on whether there was something structurally wrong with replication that hadn't shown up in the first years. And one of the attacks was around this idea of diversification and that, and, and this sort of inference was, and I, by the way, I've written a lot and I, we do all these videos and I talk about kind of what happened. Um, and it was a period where basically managed futures hedge funds were finding better trades than we were in the simpler portfolio that we were running. But, but the idea, what we concluded, and now it's been shown in like in the second quarter, we were matched again and then third quarter, we've been outperforming so far. It was, uh, we viewed the first quarter as um, a very, just very unusual period when we looked at it. Um, not, not unprecedented, but very unusual. And things like the Mexican peso were contributing more than they would have short end of the Canadian dollar curve. Because we, you know, we run our own trend models to kind of, as a, kind of a sanity check on what we're seeing out there. But, but what came out of it is I started getting, you know, questions and criticisms. Well, it was, is 10 core futures contracts too few? And when we first started looking at this space back in 2015, we didn't have 10. We said, let's do it in the simplest way that we can. And we'd actually started looking at it with four contracts. And we'd actually looked at a bunch of other things. I mean, most hedge fund strategies that you can replicate, you can do with surprisingly few contracts. But when we looked at it, we actually found that, you know, there is some, when you're picking four contracts, if you pick the S&P versus you know, Euro stocks, you can end up with quite different results. So you expand it a little bit. Um, but what I wanted to do is write something that basically showed, look, a very simple study, which is that if you took just the four, you know, biggest, deepest, most liquid contracts or, or close to it in each asset class, the S&P 500, the 10-year um, treasury, the euro and crude oil, and, and you ran the same kind of replication model where you said, you know, look, let's look at recent data of the index of hedge funds, SOCGEN CTA index. Um, let's try to figure out, let's estimate what they've been doing before fees and, and, and the model basically says what, you know, what portfolio long and short of these would have most closely matched in this recent period. And the whole idea of replication is, is that likely to be a good representation over the next four or five days? And, and it turns out that actually, um, uh, it works really, really well. So what I was trying to do is basically say, I was trying to do two things. One is to say the debate isn't between 10 and 70 because four works well. 10 is actually not the we, we obviously didn't do four because four is, we actually see some risks in it, in that, in that the factors that we 10, we felt more comfortable with. Um, so I wanted to kind of like, like make a point that this dichotomy between 10 and 70 was not right. It was actually between four and 70. And then, and then where we were 10 was not on, on one end of it. And the second was actually just to provide a framework 
as to why it, why we think it works. Um, you know, because a lot of the language in the space is about idiosyncratic factor contributions to returns. And again, not as a managed futures guy originally, but just in general, when I look at the markets, like I see stuff moving in packs, always. You know, I look at a value investor and if the value investor, if value stocks are doing well, that's a bigger driver of what he's doing than whether he's picking the 10 best value stocks. I haven't found that guy yet. I can, I've had a guy who's sort of religiously devoted to value stocks. So, so our whole philosophy has always been that this idea that stocks, bonds, everything else, every, everything is just either going up or down or not moving. You know, people talk about these orthogonal risks that, you know, that, that somehow you've got things going up or down, but then something else is flying off to the right and something else is flying this. This is not the way the financial markets work. So, so part of it was also to introduce this just kind of basic idea of that we're not trying to do what you guys are doing. We're just trying to identify what we call clusters. You know, when, when the S&P, sorry, when, when rates start going up, that's going to ripple through every different fixed income instrument. And the argument you guys would make is that, yeah, but it's going to ripple through some in a much more pronounced way, in a much more meaningful way than others. And we're going to hop on that and we're going to find those in advance. And our view is, well, we're okay just getting broad representation of the pool. So the instrument that we pick is not, let's say, 10-year treasury. It's not designed to be, oh, we think everybody has on average you know, a 19.3% short position in the 10-year treasury or whatever it is. Rather, it's if that happens to be a deep and liquid way of expressing kind of what's happening all with these clusters. And so in a period like like the first two months of this year, you know, having the two-year treasury did not work nearly as well as having the short end of the Canadian curve. Like we missed something. So anyway, that's that's why that's why I ended up writing. Okay. I mean this is great because it, it allows me to um pick your brain about a few things that you just said. First of all, I'm curious, what risks did you identify with just using four markets? Why not use four if it works so well? Well, because there is so so we are huge skeptics about backtesting anything. Um, so we like simplicity, right? So so we're very different. The ideal model for us is one that is robust, and we don't change it, and it works, and we don't change it for twenty years, right? It's a very unquanty approach to things. That 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 you know, if you, uh, friends of mine who've been quanted invest in banks, like if they're not constantly creating new products then they're not doing their job, right? If they're not taking the models that they have and making them better, right? And as an investor and, and as somebody who's allocated to hedge funds over a long time, I always, it's, those things sound great, but I always ask basic questions like, the only reason you're telling me about this enhancement is because something didn't work. So your best guess as to how to make this work five years ago didn't work. And now you're telling me to take a bet on you that the new thing that you've done is going to work better than what happened previously. Because you really, you don't generally have people saying, I've been knocking the cover off the ball, and now I know how to knock two covers off the ball, right? Usually it's that, that very American expression. I think you started talking to me about, about sports, so I've gone back to my 1970s analogies. So I don't know for certain that if I had been standing there 15 years ago, that my partner and I looking around the world would have said those factors make the most sense. I might have said, well, the S&P had done really not much very well. I might have said, yeah, we want the MSCI world, the MXWO. We want something else. We want some broader representation. So, And also, what these guys, we call them wave detectors, because we think you guys are out kind of looking across the market scene and trying to find these waves. How you focus on what you do may change over time. 
So there is a non-zero chance that the next 10 years will be about a lot more about markets outside the US. We have a quite US-centric portfolio. Not totally US-centric, but the portfolio that I've described to you was more US-centric than what we would have today. So look, I mean, modeling is judgment calls. And, and for us, we were trying to find the right balance between we when you're doing replication with a short data set, you statistically shouldn't have 70 instruments. You can't look at 20 daily data points and try to map 70 futures contracts on it. It doesn't work statistically unless you then reduce all of your dimensions and and get it down. But but then you're just using a smaller set or factor set to begin with. So it was a, it was a judgment call that we made. And it's it, you know, in retrospect, it looks like it looks like the right one. Sometimes we look at things that were simpler than what we did. I think we, you know, this was the something we wrote about earlier this year when we were looking at the performance of replication-based strategies in the first quarter, right? We were too complicated in the first quarter. All we wanted, we should have had a one-factor model in the first quarter, which was just a two-year judgment contract. <laughs> that worked that at a 90-something percent correlation. Because And instead, by taking, but what a model does, it's say, well, I'm not going to take some risk and I'm going to find you know, the S&P or something that's moving with it. Those broke down. They didn't work as well. So, um, so all of this is a judgment call, you know? Okay. So another thing you mentioned, uh, was, uh, that, yeah, I mean, if you, uh, look at global interest rates, a couple of contracts will probably be fine. And, and, and maybe you're seeing this across other sectors. Interestingly enough, what I'm seeing, and I was also talking to uh, Katie about this last week is when I look at our positions, I would say, and this is just from sort of eyeballing it, I would say I'm actually starting to see more divergence among markets. Just take currencies. I mean, they're not all short, all long against the dollar and stuff like that. So I'm seeing a little bit of divergence. Now, this is not a, a call of whether it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that, and, and I wanted maybe your perspective on this, and that is, um, and I don't know how far back you go when you do your back test, but one of the things that uh, I could imagine is that in the last couple of decades, and, and we kind of talked about this just before, about how abnormal those decades have been, um, but there have also been a period where central banks have been very, very good at keeping things quiet. Uh, there's been a couple of crises. They've kind of done what they needed to do, but generally speaking, no big booms, no big bust, et cetera, et cetera. In an environment, in an environment like this, I can imagine that things are perhaps more clustered, that they more move more in tandem. When I started in this industry many moons ago, economies were actually quite divergent. You, Japan could have a great period and the US would be in recession and Europe would be somewhere in between, et cetera, et cetera. What happened then was it all got very synchronized. All the economies more or less moved in, in tandem. And I think that that may be changing again. So I wonder if you've ever thought about whether the data set uh, that you've been looking at to create these replication models and to kind of pick your universe uh, where you say, well, that's actually 10 markets is enough. W whether you think that could be just because we've been in a pretty unusual, quite stable environment. Sure. So we'll, 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 on our side, we, you, we can run the data reliably back to the early 2000s, right? So it's the suction CT that started in 2000. The suction data gets worse the closer you get to 2000. 
Sachin didn't start on Jan 1, 2000 and say, we're going to create a pure hedge fund index and find the 20 guys at the time. I mean, this was before institutionalization of the business. It was the, kind of the wild west. So Sachin created, anyways, you get more selection bias and more data issues. And also, um, in from an intellectual purity perspective, of those 10 major contracts that we trade, the you, before you get to, before 2002, they, you know, you, some of them sort of drop off. Um, and, and again, looking back in, I mean, I'm, I'm a history major. I'm not a quant, uh, almost became a quant, but I, I dodged that bullet or maybe I'm a quant now making up for now, but you know, of course the world changes, right. And, and, and the world changes, uh, and, and in fact, the whole lunacy of the whole factor investing business is the starting assumption that what's worked over the past 70 years will work over the next 70 years. At literally, I mean, that is like literally an insane assumption because you would think then that if somebody decided on a factor in 1992, like when Fama published, um, Fama and French published their paper, you'd think they'd still be using it today. Because if it's permanent, you don't have to keep changing it. And yet every couple of years, we, they keep changing the value factor to try to come up with something that would have worked over, over the past period. So there's no, there's no question, but I think the, the, you know, but replication is surprisingly robust for the following reason. And, and the core idea is that things either go up or down. Right. So, so let's say I wanted to replicate, I'm just going to use a silly example. Let's say I wanted to replicate Bitcoin. The Bitcoin guys will say, oh no, 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 we do. And for a period of time, right. When it went from like a dollar to 70,000 or something, of course, but then it kind of becomes bigger and becomes institutionalized. And, and, and now I, I haven't tried it, but I'm sure you could probably replicate Bitcoin with NASDAQ and it wouldn't look terrible or crazy because Bitcoin is only going up or down. And something is causing it to go up or down and something's causing NASDAQ to go up or down. And so, 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 so the really simple thing about replication is it's just a bet on some stability in the correlation structure of the market, right? That, that the past 20 days, let's say, let's say you have 70 instruments, 69 of them haven't moved over the past 20 days with the exception of the S and P 500 has gone up 2% and wheat has gone up 10%. And nothing else, 68 positions haven't moved over that period of time. A replication model would say, well, I need five S&P 500 contracts to, to get to the same exposure. Now, that sounds insane, unless over the next five years, that's a reasonable representation of what we is doing. And, and the thing is, and that's an, you know, an incredibly extreme example, but in a sense, managed, the whole managed futures business is a bet on stability of what's, what's happened over some recent period of time is going to continue. Replication is philosophically identical, but it's not a bet on single instruments going up or down. It's a bet on the correlation of the structure of the markets is relatively stable. And it's not always, but let's say U S and European interest rates diverge for the next 10 years. Well, something's going to be correlating with either side of that. We could have direct exposure to the U S interest rates indirect exposure to something else to non-US interest rates that's moving in the other direction. And you could end up with, and, and you, could, you could still actually get an accurate replica replication. Like on the equity long short side, we don't invest in single stocks. You can do it with futures contracts because if hedge funds are moving from growth to value stocks, and, and you can see that in their numbers, if you have more Russell 2000, which overlaps like a Venn diagram, with, with value stocks or more European stocks, you're picking up on something fundamental. Now, if they are only finding the stocks that do well, right, then, then, then it may not be. So in the case that I described, if, if you guys really find 
the one position that goes up and nothing else moves up, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to figure it out. It, and, and we know this because there are a lot of things you cannot replicate and you should not try to replicate. So the big, you know, the, the great investment strategy du jour are, are multi-strategy hedge funds. And these guys are magicians in what they do, right? They're taking a dollar of your capital. They're leveraging it five to 10. They're hiring teams of people to, to deliver several hundred basis points of, re, of excess returns per dollar of capital. They take half, you end up with 10 to 15, right? They make 30 on your, on your dollar. They take half, you end up with 15 and they do it without blowing up, right? But, and they do it with zero correlation. So you cannot replicate that because there is nothing there. They themselves are hedging out the underlying risks. Managed futures as a strategy, or equity long short as a strategy in general are not hedging out the underlying risks. They're betting on the risks. Replication is just, is basically saying that there will be some short-term persistence of returns. And, 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 and in the correlation structure of the market. That was not nearly as clear as I expected it to be, but it was just, I apologize. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean, it is, it is fascinating. I actually think that once I heard someone, um, and it could have been a previous guest on the podcast saying that, that also for a long period of time had been like a 95% correlation between, and I think he said something like Indonesian potato prices and the S&P 500, something like that. I mean, so you do get some crazy stuff going on from time to time. Well, I mean, I mean the way the way that we tested it is is like we're we're very skeptical of cherry picking anything, right? And so back when we first looked at this, we said, all right, four seems a little it it, it honestly it just felt like it was it was it was too aggressive and so or too concentrated. Um so we said let's take a random so what we realized pretty quickly is is if you want to do it well, you do do need exposure to four markets. Right? You should not try to replicate the SockGen CTA index with just the S&P 500. You can do 10 different equities contracts. It doesn't get you to where you want to be. Um, so you need diversification across the four asset classes. And we said, let's take the three or four most liquid contracts per asset class and just do random combinations of it over the preceding 10 years. And every single combination we looked at, aiming for the pre-fee returns in the SockGen CTA index and adding in, because Again, replication is really efficient from a trading perspective. That's another thing that we we like about it. Um, so basically, adding in what we thought were kind of the additional trading costs, every single combination did better than the index net of fees. And so, so for us, for as an investor, like you know, people often think hedge funds want to do complicated things. We want to do the simplest things, right? We want to do the simplest and most straightforward things. We want to get it. We want it to be like this guy that Seth Klarman that I worked for published his book called margin of safety, right? You you don't want to have to be right to two decimal places to make it right. It's exactly what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger say. So this to us was our statistical margin of safety. We can pick the wrong factors and we'll still be okay. We can be in a world where where this factor set, we would have picked this factor set and we, and, and we didn't. So our view obviously is that 10 is sufficiently robust. It's designed to be able to accommodate things. Three years, we'll have the discussion. We'll see if the world has changed and, and how we're doing. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, um, it, 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 I mean, it's fascinating, and uh, of course, for someone like myself, having been on on this side of the table for so long, it's kind of very hard to accept that you can do what we do with four, even ten markets. But as you say, I mean, we'll have to just wait and see. I guess what I haven't, so I'm sort of interested, what I haven't, like now, now we're hearing about all these alternative markets funds, 
right? People are focusing on. And, and so that's based on the idea, right? That, ah, it's less liquid and it's harder to access and there, and, and, and we can show evidence of trends and we're going to somehow, that's where the real alpha generation is going to be. So are there funds out there where people say, well, of course you can get a trend in the, the yen like last year, but we're not going to do that. We're going to give you not contracts one through 10 as a matter. We're only going to give you contracts 31 through 112. And we're, and we're only going to trade in those markets. And I think the reason people don't do it is because one is I, my guess is when you really dive into the numbers over a long period of time, it actually doesn't, it isn't meaningfully better than when you include these other larger markets as well, where there are clearly underlying trends. I think it can be very inefficient and difficult to trade, but you would think that there would be, let's say a fund out there that only trades in those markets and has a sharp ratio of, of, of 1.8, but we don't see it, right? Well, there is one fund that I think for the most part trades all of these alternative markets, um, which is Florin Court. And they do say that they believe they can create a, a better shop. It um, is totally replicable. <laughs> it, is, it is as replicable as, no, it's because it's, you know, because when, like the implication is that, is that, yeah, look, so are you going to pick up on the carbon markets moving when they, when they go through some astronomical outlier, but no, usually there's some underlying force that's driving it. You know, usually it's not like, and it, like the analogy that I use is like, if you think there's going to be a commodity super cycle, is natural gas going to go down? Probably not, Right. Most of it is going to, it's going to go up more than oil, I suspect, probably because it tends to be a leveraged ex ex exposure to oil. But, you know, if your view is natural gas is going to go up over the next five years and you buy oil in some sort of a leveraged basis, you're going to be pointing in the same direction. So look, I think, I think the part of the reason people are going into these alternative markets is because this is the, the this industry has been on a 30 year path toward dissemination to, 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 you know, sort of proliferation of the strategies, the people who, who were doing this 30 years ago, like your firm, 50 years ago, 49 years ago for you guys, how many people out there knew how to do it? How many people knew who futures roles? When I first started looking at the commodity markets in, I mean, so like an interesting sort of historical point, I started one of the first, uh, fundamentally driven, uh, commodity fund of funds back in 2003. And in, and, and it was based on the fact that, that um, it was actually based on an industry structure question, which was that commodities I thought would come back into portfolios. So around 2001, I made my first investment in a hedge fund where the guys were basically tracking barges. You know, they'd have a guy sitting on, in, in Brazil counting the number of pallets of sugar that were going off um, on barges. That was a totally unique skill set. The alpha generation of these guys was insane because they had information advantages and they knew how to do things that nobody else in the world knew how to do. A business school classmate of mine made $4 billion trading natural gas and coal for a power producer. He knew who was buying the, the coal and natural gas, right? It's, it was the stuff that like a discretionary trader dreams of. I know something nobody else knows about. And, but it was also that futures markets, I mean, I would talk to unbelievably sophisticated family offices who, who didn't know what a futures contract was and didn't know how to trade it. 
how do you, how do you roll them? Wait, what do you mean they expire? I mean, it's like, it's, it's, you know, a lot of areas of the investment business are really these areas that were totally unique. And then, but then, you know, some really smart guy leaves Dunn Capital and he starts his own firm. And then somebody, a turtle trader like Jerry goes off and he starts his own firm. And so you get more and more people who know how to do it. And now on Twitter or X, I guess, whatever you call it, you've got people out there who are publishing their own trend following models. So, you know, so, so of course then people go like in the same way that Winton was not trend when GSA was out there sweeping up assets and they've sort of come back into admitting that they're a managed futures fund at heart. In the same way, you'll get people who will, you know, push into these other markets because what they were doing in the broader markets is becoming challenged or commoditized. Yeah. Well, you know, if they were really smart, they wouldn't leave Don Capital, but that's another story. Right? <laughs> Maybe nobody's left. Okay, bad example. <laughs> Anyways. It's like the Tiger Cubs, the Tiger Cubs. The Dun, you need the Dun Cubs out there. The Dun Cubs. Now, you kind of touched on something, and I, I don't know how to kind of formulate it on, on my feet here, because on one hand, our audience will have will have heard me say many times that I don't see a material difference in performance between those who trade 400 markets and those who trade 50, 60, 70 markets. That's kind of, it's different, but in the long run, it's not hugely different. At least not what I think is just driven by the markets themselves. I think that could be something with, with the models and how good your models are. So because you've probably studied managers uh, to, to some extent to get to where you are, what is your sense? I mean, with all the technology we have, with all the sophistication we now have, uh, you know, do you think a managers, because you also talk about in your article, I think it says, however, replication of single manager mutual funds demonstrates conclusively that complexity can detract from returns over time, la, 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 la. Do you think that managers have become more different or more similar in the last decade, given all of these things, or or have they, or has that changed at all? And because well, it actually question. leads me to the yeah. next question, which is something you brought up, I think, and that is how can a single manager differentiate themselves? The reason why this is an interesting question, also for me personally, is that. I would say that probably 98% of the time when you go out and you meet someone for the first time, um, they're going to ask you, so how are you, how do you differentiate yourself at Don? <laughs> so I'm curious. So my guess is there's probably been a narrowing of performance over time um, because people realize that certain things work better than others. So a lot of people say, I mean, you know, when people ask kind of like what, window lengths we think we're picking up on we think we're picking up on longer you know longer term trend medium mediumish longer term trend you know if, if a guy is day trading or trading in five day cycles you're obviously not replicating that guy but when you look at the overall space particularly the trend sub index it seems to be pretty slow moving it's not slow moving like equity long short but it's pretty i mean it's slow moving enough that i'm not worried that we're missing something big so when you look at the trend side actually the correlations are pretty high I think from an industry structure perspective, I think trend was not cool until March of 2020. That that because trend was what the banks were trying to commoditize aggressively in 2014, 2015. So look, I, I, 
David Harding, if you interview him, can answer this better than I can. But what I've heard from people about Winton, when Winton sort of famously said that they were not a trend follower anymore. What I was told was that they've gone from like 65% trend to 30% trend, whatever that means. But it was really more of a semantic shift and they went out and hired other people. People do things like that in part to defend, to create a moat around their business model. You know, that it was a, a, a full fee hedge fund, profit generator extraordinaire. And so I think sometimes when people talk about the changes that they're doing in their models, it's designed to try to differentiate themselves from the pack because, because if the trend guys in general, you know, have correlations to the SOC Gen CTA index of between, you know, 0.75 and 0.8% or 0.85% over time, that starts to look and feel a little more commoditized. Up until March of 2020, uh, when we would talk to people about the space, they loved the other stuff. Machine learning, you know, ah, machine learning is going to tell us what trends are working right now. Uh, you know, we want to be counter trend. We want to be all these different things because trend itself hadn't been working terribly well. Then in March of 2020, we saw a big shift. Trend did better. And then guess what? Last year, trend did better. And so I think there's been a huge shift back where people, instead of saying managed futures, now it's more about trend following. And my guess is usually in an in industry and in generally in, in generally any population over time, you start with a very, very wide dispersion of outcomes. And then over time, people kind of realize and they narrow in on what tends to work. I think medium and long-term trend is the single best diversifier you can put next to a portfolio of stocks and bonds bar, bar none. Whether they get exposure to that through you or one of your competitors or through us. The other stuff though will be differentiated, but think about what this must have been like 30 years ago, if you've gotten five guys who are doing this. You've got some guy who doesn't know anything about the space, who's back-tested a model where he's got a, I've got a 15-day um, uh, window that I'm looking at, and he doesn't even know that he's trading on the morning of the, the day that he's getting the data. So he's, you know, basically got a, he's kind of front-running his own, his own analytics, right? That guy's going to launch. He's going to be down 70% in the first year. He's gone. He disappears. And if people know about him, they're not going to do that again. Right. So, so then they're going to, then, and that's where people study and the papers get published. So I think, I think in general, you do have this compression over time. And also because people don't want to be the guy who's down 30 or 40 when everybody else is up 20. And, and so just from an economic perspective, particularly for bigger firms, usually the incentive is you want to stay relatively, the bigger you get, the closer you want to stay to the, to, to the rest of the pack, the more enhancements you want to talk about. But if you're young and hungry, you want to do something different. And you're hoping that the pack gets hit and you look like a star and then you have a business. I want to just clarify one thing because we've obviously, actually, I did sit down with David Harding back around 2017 with his two uh, co-founders of AHL. And, I, you know, this was kind of around the time where he decided to make some changes. Uh, I will say that I think, and whether this was, during the recording or just after, I don't know, but I think he did acknowledge that it was uh, certainly something that w w was significant. But I also know from a more recent conversation uh, with one of the uh, uh, head of research uh, over at Winton that, of course, from their point of view, and I want to make that clear, that, that they didn't, they never left trend following, but they certainly de-emphasized it. People were saying trend was dead and they were using Winton's de-emphasis of trend if David Harding 
is reducing his exposure to trend and doing equities or whatever else that they were doing, you know, people look at that and they assume that he knows something about the future and trend. And, and again, my, you know, observation is somebody who doesn't know a whit about what they do and could, could not hold a candle to that guy in terms of his understanding of this business and the incredible success of what he's had and what he's delivered to his, his clients over time. You know, what was happening in the mid 2010s with banks coming out or GSA, like GSA had a 50 basis point product. They had a few, they flipped heads a few years in a row. They had $10 billion of assets after a few years. Like that's a, you know, when you've got somebody who's out there offering something at a much lower price, who's got knocked the cover off the returns, it, people have to respond competitively to it. And I think, I think back to your point, I think just, just, I think just the general dynamics of, of, of the space in the mutual fund space in, in which in the U S which I know better is that, you know, there's a lot of pressure for people to, you know, to explain what it is that's going to differentiate from the pack over the next five years. And, and, and I'm just having, I'm just skeptical that these things do what people are hoping they're going to do. Now, I mean, this may sound like a really cheeky question, uh, and it's not meant to be, but I am curious because you bring up a really good point, and that is, and I don't necessarily know that we need to sort of uh, pick on that particular firm, starting with a G and an S and an A, but they definitely came out and disrupted the industry by lowering the fees to that extent, and people thought they were going to get the same as they were going to get from uh, a firm. Yeah. But aren't you doing exactly the same, Andrew, though? Because you're also disrupting our industry by saying, I can give you what all these other guys are doing, and I can do it for 85 basis. I mean, I'm just really intellectually curious, where's the difference? Well, so I think I think the only, we have this, you know, as you know from the last time when I got ambushed, the this expression like few reductions appears more of alpha. I mean, it's 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 the best investors in hedge funds that I that I know. You know, they they start with do I like the strategy? And then how do I want to get exposure to that? And 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 fees. Thing is, in, in the hedge fund industry, 98% of people who invest in the hedge fund industry are price takers. They show up after a fund has been really successful. They have they they show up, there's already a line of people around the block, and they don't have a lot of money to invest. Even consulting firms, right? Consulting firms walk in and say, um, you know, well, we're not going to approve you unless you give give you a fee, fee discount, and they'll take like a fifteen basis point fee discount on a two and twenty structure and call it and, and and call it victory, right? So, I to me, we think just that 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 if you want to consistently outperform. So what what GSA was different though, in that in that GSA was, it was a single manager product, right? There's always a single manager product who's gonna who's gonna do well. GSA wouldn't have taken market share. If with a low fee product, if they had not been doing well, it was the combination of flipping heads multiple times in a row, plus a low fee product that and 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 timing converging at the right time, and they get this geometric asset growth. We're trying to do something different. We're actually we're not trying to take more, you know, radical risks. We're not trying to. We're just basically saying like what we think these guys are doing collectively is amazing and valuable, but we are going to try to find the most straightforward most efficient way of getting exposure to it. We're not always going to be right, but just purely from an asset allocator perspective, we think we're going to be, we're going to be right. We're going to have a tailwind from fees. And, and I learned a little bit about this from guys who run hedge fund portfolios at, you know, at some of the sovereign wealth funds. They always do better than the SOCGEN CTA index. 
you know, and if they came to you and said, we will give you, uh, well, you guys are, you guys are, you know, so I think, I think, uh, uh, but no, but if, but if, but if, you know, if they came to you and said, we'll give you a billion dollars in tied up for five years, you know, almost every, because this is, is a space that is not massively capacity constrained, they're not going to pay what the private bank who's onboarded the fund is paying. They're going to get a special deal. And so their experience from 2015 to 2020 in this space was better. It wasn't a thousand basis points better, but they they do that with four or five different guys and they do better. So Dunn to me was a a fund that had done well, but had, had done well either, I don't know exactly what it was in their modeling, but but they had done well because of luck was a huge component of it. Luck or leverage or something was a huge component of it. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to eliminate that side of it. We're not trying to be the one guy who does well three day, three years in a row and then underperforms. We're trying to just 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 grind out through efficiency a little bit of outperformance over time. It's very boring compared to it. It's not exciting. We don't have lots of good stories to tell about it. But for you know the asset allocators that we want that I talked to on this webinar I did yesterday, we want guys who are who who want no noise in the allocation. They don't want to have to worry who's the best. They, they like the space. They look at the SockGen CTA index and say, I wish I could have that. I don't want to try to find which of the guys I like. I don't want to find pick a guy like you who's done a lot better, but who's not in it. So like it's, they just don't want that risk. They want to put, they want an easy way to get exposure today. Because like the irony of the ideal diversifier for these guys is they want to talk about it in 2022 when it's doing well. They don't want to talk about it for the next seven years. And then they want to talk about it again. And the way you avoid talking about it during that period of time is your benchmark plus, where you're in, you're in line with the benchmark. Because then if, if, if the space goes through another long winter, it's not, it's not that your guy was down 20 when the space was flat. So it's just, it's, it's a, you know, again, cause we, we came in it from their side, you know, but anyway, so I, I think it's different. Cause I think it's, I would bet more on fee disintermediation, trading efficiency and things like that over time, unless there are demonstrable sources of excess returns that we're not capturing, in which case we'll do okay, but we won't do as well. I'm not going to go into it today, but I did pick up because you mentioned TransTrend, and I think you said you know, you've you sort of followed them or you have a pretty good idea. And I just wanted to uh, maybe, um, because I was going to pick up this next week with, uh, with Nick Baltus, uh, or at least if you want to talk about it, because TransTrend actually put out a, a paper a couple of days ago talking about what they thought was really the edge in them and other trend followers. And as from memory, I kind of briefly skimmed it. You know, Harold was talking about that actually the fact that they trade around their positions, that that's really where they think the alpha, not so much the fact that they're in, you know, short dollar or long dollar, whatever they might, but the fact that they are dynamically managing their positions and and, and not all, everything that he wrote, uh, I agreed with. I thought some of it I couldn't quite reconcile. But anyways, people should go and write that article so they're ready for next week when I talk to Nick about it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, we've got a couple of other topics we need to cover, I think. Okay, let's just focus on two more topics, Andrew. Um, we'll finish with the with the story about the train wreck, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. But before that, I want to talk about something positive because you also wrote to me about why CTA assets will be much higher in yeah. 10 years. 
that gets me excited and I'd love to know how <laughs> okay. I can how I can help and benefit from it. Well, look, so, so, so we started talking about it, right? So, 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 which is that there, today there are $5 trillion of model portfolios and BlackRock thinks it's going to 10 trillion in, in five years. Um, the, the, the entire wealth management world, every pension plan, et cetera, they live and breathe through model portfolios. Um, and, and the entire basis of a model portfolio is the core of it is that stocks and bonds are not going to move together. They hedge each other. And almost all diversifiers that they have. So we have this kind of pithy analogy, which, which, which is that basically, and by the way, I will credit Eric McArdle at Simplify in the US for coming up with this, but basically that stocks and bonds have been this two-legged stool and two-legged stools are not stable. On the other hand, for the past 20 years, the Fed has been, has been a wall. It's been, it's been, it's been up against the Fed, not letting that, that, that thing fall down. Right. It's, it's not quite perfect because actually they were kind of, they actually were inversely correlated with the design. 30 years ago, that was very risky, right? That was a, 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 a scary roller coaster up and down. But then because of the, 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 the strength of recent history in that, the 2000s, like if you look at the, but the dot com crisis, equities went down 50%, but bonds soared, right? Cause we started with high interest rates and then bonds, uh, bonds came down. 2008, equities get crushed again. And bonds don't go down, but they're they're not, you know, they don't soar because again, they don't have as far to go down anymore. Then you get down to 2022, they both go down. Okay. And then in January, they both go up. And then February, they both go down. And then last month, they both go down, et cetera. This is an existential threat because what happened is you now have a two-legged stool where the wall's been taken away and, 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 and it just fell over. So you need a third leg to it. That's not, most diversifiers are designed to bolster one of those two walls. One of those two, two, two legs. Private equity is equity with a different wrapper. Private credit is credit, the different wrapper. Um, and, you know, real estate and things like that, everything has a high correlation to one of the two. The only thing in the liquid hedge fund world where you can say it has a correlation to ne neither one of them is managed futures. And so imagine an allocator in 2030. Okay, the guy just got out of business school. He's got his, you know, CFA level three or something, and he's been hired to build an asset allocation model. And he's going to think about efficient frontier and how do I increase it? Oof, that you know, that portfolio of stocks and bonds is not really helping each other very much. What can I add that's going to that would have given me a smoother ride? So the asset allocator of the twenty of twenty thirty is going to look at the twenty twenties. I think because I, I think the correlations will stay positive. And you say I think it's normal. And, and think that, God, I really wish I'd had this managed future strategy, this trend strategy back in 2022, 2023. Because, you know, it didn't just work in 2022. It worked again in 2025. It worked again here. And statistically, it, it, it raised his efficient frontier. And so the messaging then is that managed futures anchors the third leg of the stool. Now you have stability again that you don't have with just the other two. I know it's a very simple, pithy metaphor, but that's the way we get the 99.9% .9 of people who are not invested in the space to be able to visualize the experience of owning the strategy without having to revert to sharp ratios, draw down stats and other things like that. How do we, because we have to help them give what their clients want, which is they want to retire with as much money as possible with as little noise between here and there. And 
if stocks and bonds start moving in tandem or continue to move in tandem, those people are wrapped, are stuck in a on, on a scary roller coaster and we can, and, and try to get them something better. So going this back about people, it's just dawning on people that it's probably not going to change. Because what do you do if you're that asset allocator? You like how you've been building your portfolios. And it's very hard to say, we think the world has changed. But but so that's where it's like when people, when I talk to people about it, they're like, you know, poof, I make all the way up to a 5% allocation and manage futures. I'm really going to like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to load up, you know, back up the truck and go to a 5% allocation. You'll see standard allocations could go to 10%, 15%. But what we need as a, as a space is a better narrative because, because managed futures, I waste so much time trying to explain to people what managed futures means and, and, and Futures contracts sound scary. They sound like they're going to blow up on you. The Sockgen CT index has a max drawdown of fourteen percent since two, since since two thousand using using monthly data. That's not risky, but people think it's risky. And and going back to the point about the you know how people build, try to establish competitive advantage in the space by by differentiating themselves for the next guy. Those are very very technical distinctions. That that again a. You know, a guy at a wealth manager who buys your fund is not going to take comfort in the fact that don't worry um, those, you know, intraday trading things that were introduced here or this thing that was introduced there, these things that are introduced there, they're not working now, but don't worry, Bob, as you're sitting on the golf course with them, they're going to come back. Um, and so, so I think, I think, you know, we went from CTAs, which was weird and arcane to manage futures to trend following and trend following gets us closer. The problem is Trend following can be really bad. Trend following, you know, we are not only identifying the good trends. 52% of the time, we're identifying the good trends. So, so every asset class that becomes institutionalized has a term associated with it that's so compelling. You know, we don't, you know, again, we don't say like, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, what, what are you buying? Oh, I'm investing in, in, in high yield and high default bonds. You know, oh, I'm I'm buying quality stocks that are actually overpriced right now. I'm buying uh, value stocks that are the worst companies in the world, but I'm pretty sure I'm buying it cheaply enough. Like, uh, you know, I'm doing. Le- we don't do say leverage buyouts; we do private equity. So I haven't come up with it yet, but I think the I think part if we got to convince asset allocators that they need this in their portfolio in the next ten years, and that's going to be a what most people in this industry would consider to be a a you know a minding mind numbingly simple. As long as your narrative doesn't say, well, we buy stuff that has already gone up in price or that we sell stuff that has already fallen, I think we should be okay. But uh, that's actually what we do. But that's another story for another day. One point of clarification, actually, before we go to the last point, which I'm very interested in hearing. You said earlier in the conversation, you said in Q1, you you struggled and you looked at things. But actually, I didn't. Uh, maybe I didn't pick up on that. Did you find anything? Did you make any changes to the way you do replication, or was it just no? No, okay, no, fine. we didn't. Yeah, and it's. I and just want to clarify it's, that it's really, it's really hard not to. I got to tell you, when you're in the middle of it, God, you want to add factors. God, you want to, you want to change things. Like it is so hard, and that's the. We, we haven't changed the model since we started in 2016 in this particular, you know, in this in this variant of the strategy, even 2015 and the other one, and and that is just based on an idea that. We're not going to anticipate some change that's going to take. We're going to have to really see it play out for some period of time and feel like there's, it's going to, and then we're going to have to verify it in two ways. We're going to have to really believe 
you know, in, in a way that we can't prove because the past one, we're going to have to really believe that the world has changed in some fashion. And then we're going to have to see you guys doing it. Right. So if let's say, let's say crypto becomes, you know, and two years ago, everyone was saying, why aren't you using crypto Bitcoin in your model? I said, first of all, we're not using because they're not right. You know, that, that people, people might dabble in it here or there to see if it's, but nobody is loading up, backing up the truck to, to trade crypto. So, and then as the correlations with crypto got very positive, we said, all right, then, then you're kind of back into this clusters idea. Um, but, but so what we would have to see if we were to do something like that, you know, we'd have to meet the criteria that one, it is really different from the stuff that we can get liquid. Cause I'm guessing that Bitcoin future will not be nearly as liquid as the stuff that we're currently trading. And then we'd have to see that you guys have decided you and Katie and, you know, and, and, and Harold and all these other people have said, you know, like we're going to bet the farm that this is where we're going to be generating money and then we'll do it. So we won't, we won't, we won't be as, as, and, and, and there, we could miss a period of time. If you guys see it, you guys get into it and it's a great trade for six months, but we won't, it won't be five years. It'll be some period of time before we do it. Yeah. Cool. All right. The final point that you wrote, well, not actually you wrote some more, but I think, uh, one point I wanted to get in before we, uh, we, we close up today is um, your thoughts on where the next train wreck, as you so um, bluntly put it, in hedge fund land will will appear? Um, and I'm curious about this myself, frankly. So uh, talk a little talk a little bit about that. So my my, my definition, I probably train wreck is a bit of a, an exaggeration. But I thought it would get your attention, which it did. The um, no, look, I think the um, I'm always fascinated with this industry. Right. I love kind of when I see everyone rushing to one side of the boat and then they go rushing to the other side of the boat. I mean, if you even recently, I mean, the funds in the 2010s that could do no wrong were the Tiger Cubs and they got slaughtered, right? Some of them were down 50% last year and they're, oh, well, there's a big recovery. They're up 20%. I'm sorry, you're still down 40% year over year, right? And so, and so, so, so what happens is when, when a strategy that everybody thinks is, is a can't lose strategy starts to do badly, they just stop talking about it. It gets really quiet because the only people who want to talk to it are journalists, but allocators don't want to talk about it. The fund managers don't want to talk about it. So anyway, so that was kind of like, like last year's news. Everyone is obsessed with multi-strategy hedge funds today and they have been magicians, right? They have think, think, I mean, who would have thought in early 2020 that you would have a series of multi-deca billion funds out there leveraged five times, 10 times or something that would skate through COVID, the recovery, inflation, et cetera, and bang out returns. They're like 12% CDs. I mean, they, they, they are like, I've, I mean, I don't know what they're like, like, I mean, they're like hippopotamuses doing pirouettes in, 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 in ice skates on the bow of a ship in a, in a, in a hurricane. Like you just, you can't believe they're pulling this off. So a lot of people have been expecting it to blow up. I don't expect them to blow up in, in for the following reason. Um, we are in the 25th anniversary of long-term capital. If you are Ken Griffin or Izzy Englander or any of the guys who run one of these firms, you have hired the, the very, very best risk managers in the world to try to understand everything that could possibly go wrong. Um, and so I doubt they'll blow up in the way that people were kind of expecting. On the other hand, they could be dead money, right? That, that in the world that they were growing up, every other strategy that we look at that was highly leveraged 
when interest rates were, like it was terrible for CTAs when interest rates were zero. But if you were a massive borrower, right, if CTAs were just, were, were just using futures contracts to go long everything and therefore the interest rate was kind of implicit in it, it would have been great. But unfortunately we go long and short. So we've got this, our long position is cash, which wasn't doing anything. But now think about it. You've been leveraged five to one and your borrowing costs have gone up 400 basis points. Your real borrowing costs have gone from negative 200 basis points, 150 basis points to positive. That's going to be a problem for private equity, leverage companies, uh, uh, real estate, right? If you were leveraged and long in the 2010s, it, even in, in indirect ways, like disruptive tech stocks and things where they were pushing money into it, you look like a genius. So what makes these guys different? Now, at the same time, there are the two other ind industry dynamics that have been happening. So one is that they manage double the assets they, they managed four or five years ago, right? And the way that they manage more assets is, is they have a lot of strategies that are somewhat capacity constrained. So you need lots and lots of teams to do it. But the insanity is that they don't pay their guys. You do as the investor. They say called a pass-through. So they say, this is a great team. We want to bring them in. And they can offer a $100 million signing bonus that they don't pay a penny of. Their clients do. They just add it to the list of all the other expenses. Their offices, they're this, they're that, their planes, they're this, everything else. You know, the, all of it goes into their expenses and they just pass it along. So when have we ever seen something where people do not bear the costs of things that they are going out and buying, where people haven't overpaid? So increase in asset growth, a rapid increase in the expense side of it, and then your funding costs just went up a lot. How are these guys going to, and by the way, just from a comparative perspective, they used to be compared to zero, right? And anything looked great relative to zero. And instead they're now at, they're, they're being compared to 5%. So what I think is going to happen most likely is that, oh, and by the way, these guys are, you know, when you invest with a hedge fund, you want them to be a rapacious capitalist. <laughs> you don't want to invest in altruistic hedge funds. You want them to wake up thinking about how do they grab more money out of, the, out of, out of that guy's chest. Uh, and, and so as these guys were lined up around the block, they basically said, I'm sorry, we're closing the doors unless you tie up your money for five years. So hundreds of, billion, of, of billions of dollars of capital cannot go anywhere for the next five years. So I think when we look back in five years, there will be some guys who will knock the lights out. There'll be some guys who will disappoint. But I think on average, you could see a situation where the guys who are the best and brightest of 2023 underperform cash or come close to it. And so what I think that does, the reason I think it matters to us is that it's the one strategy out there where you can say definitively, if you're an institutional investor, it's zero correlation. And, and yet it's this alpha generation machine. It's this two sharp ratio, you know, kind of monsters that you have. If I'm an institutional allocator in 2021 and I can do that or I can do CTAs, CTAs is a headache for me. It's too volatile. It's too transparent. It's liquid. And if it's liquid, it means somebody's wondering whether I'm making the right decision or whether to get out or not. But five years from now, if we're earning 5% on the cash and making something on top of it, and maybe the liquidity starts to look good. Maybe the 3% that you've been in that, in that multi-strat hedge funds, when they're getting paid 10% in fees and your board is asking you why you tied up money in 2023, that guy, and going back to the point that we made earlier, your stocks and bonds are correlated, which means your private equity and your private credit and everything else is correlated. 
what's the obvious solution? And that's where I think you'll get a lot of people who historically have not bothered in the space because of the difficulty of explaining it. Well, and that, that's when I think you get kind of the real expansion, expansion of AUMs. Now, if we have, if we have a terrible two years, it's, that's all, that's all lost. And if, you know, but it's anyway, that's, that's why it's, it's, I just think it's an interesting, these things come in waves that I, I think we're very well positioned for. It. I think it's interesting. I think you bring up some very interesting points. I have no inside view on how they do with their expenses, but I did read a Bloomberg article this week saying that some of these firms will pay their interns $19,000 a month fly them business class, and I can't remember what else they mentioned, but it sounded pretty good to me. Um, so uh, if you're um, about that age where you're looking for internships, I would look up the list of multi-strategy funds uh, before you do anything else. You know, people suspend disbelief when they want to believe it, right? And, and, and you know, the thing about it, <laughs> the, the great lesson of Madoff, and this is nothing like Madoff, right? These are, these are some of the greatest money makers who've ever lived. But the thing about Madoff is, is the people who bought Madoff, it was obvious there was something wrong with Madoff. But the people who ended up buying into it, they didn't want to ask the question because you kind of know what the answer is going to be. The answer is going to be, you're not going to get a really satisfying response. Um, and so, but it was hard. It was hard to say no to it because if you'd been skeptical of Madoff in 2004, you saw firms growing up around it and enabling it and kind of going on and they kept making money and they looked better and their returns were better. What, what happens with these bubbles is that the, you know, the early cynics who will be right five years later, they get run over and they get marginalized. And the people who buy into it, it's not just the fund selling themselves, it's the allocators taking credit for what the fund is doing. Um, I wrote actually something recently on this whole phenomenon of these global apps return funds, uh, where this, there's this thing called standard life GARS, which is promising basically cash plus five with, with, with a low standard deviation. And I call it the Voldemort of, of the asset management business, because when I first started coming to Europe for this use, it's fund, I, I run this firm called SEI, the, um, uh, they kept, everyone talked about this. It's like, well, this is a no brainer. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. At the time it's supposedly had signed $90 billion dollars. In assets, it was bigger than Bridgewater. It was bigger than any it, it, this global multi you know multi asset fund was bigger than any hedge fund in the world at the time, but it was liquid and a low fee, and people were selling it. And it's been dead money since then. It's actually gone down since I think I forget the numbers. Down 2015, 2016. Thing is, nobody talks about it anymore because who wants to talk about that they bet the farm on this thing that didn't do well? At first, they'll defend it, right? Because that's what we do. At first, it's just oh, it's just a weird market environment. It's going to come back. It's going to come back because it's much harder to admit the 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 decision was delusional in the first place. That I mean, cash plus five is really hard to do. Cash plus five over time is equity like returns, but when you're saying I can do that with one fifth the risk risk of the equity markets, once the beta of the equity markets, you know you are that's the holy grail, and you're offering it in a liquid form. And so when people want to believe it, they'll believe it. And so what I would like to do at some point is be is is be at the point with managed futures where we're demonstrating the benefits where people want to believe it and they accept it. And the problem, I think, with the language of the space is that it's so embedded with 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 technical stuff and futures contract. I was talking to to one of our competitors in the US, and us and they were saying, like, you know. I was saying, how do you tell people why managed futures should make money? And they went into this long story about, about, 
you know, price taking and commercial hedging and other things like that. And, and I said, you know, I think it's and like this, is, but like, I'm the guy who comes up with a stool or, you know, talks about a stool analogy. Once you started to talk to the average allocator about a futures contract and what you're buying and selling, it's very hard to get yourself out of that hole. So we get the narrative right. The markets cooperate, stocks and bonds, and by, and by the way, all those allocators who are looking at substitutes for their multi-strategy allocations in five years, they're buying you, not us. They are, they are, they are buying you, Man AHL, Pimco, you know, Transtrend. It is going to be a bonanza for you guys because because they are set up to buy a bunch of single funds to get exposure. It's what they want. Now, if you're right about that, then I think the real challenge will be on us as an industry, because then it's up to us to make sure that we don't overstep our capacity. Um, because I think that's that's a real risk. And now, of course, I I don't I have no idea if suddenly what we do will be so popular that, that we're going to see you know hundreds of billions of dollars uh, moving into the space. But in any event, uh, I think that is a challenge for our industry. And I think some of the strategies that we've seen, both actually on the trend-following side, which is very hard to, well, it's a bigger amount you need to get to before you uh, get to capacity. But certainly in the shorter-term space, I think some of the funds out there that have maybe seen their performance come down, I think a lot of it has to do with capacity, not so much that the strategy has kind of stop working. But anyways, that's... But we're going to have what we always have in this, right? Is we're going to have a, a... You mentioned this kind of like, has it gotten more different? It will be, It will always be different, right? There will be the, you know, the esoteric product funds out there that'll be launched. There will be, you know, there will be the core trend followers who are doing what they're doing. There will be people who come up with a new thing. If it's not, if short-term trend, you know, in three years still isn't working, there won't be short-term trend funds. They'll have, they'll have become something else. They'll have found something new. I mean, the business is built around product creation based upon changes in the world and then also marketing around what those changes are. But I think I think the core trend following, the core driver of returns, I don't think has capacity issues for a long time. Like, I mean, do, do you think we couldn't have made 20% last year with twice the assets? No, I mean, first of all, I think there's a lot more assets doing trend following than what we see. So I agree that there is definitely a lot of uh, capacity out there. But on the other hand, I will also say that I think that they, when I look at managers that have come and gone over the years, I think some of it has to do with yeah them just being becoming too big. And I, and what what I don't really understand is you know let's just say you're fortunate enough to get to five, six, seven billion dollars as a trend follower. Even if you think you can get to fifteen, why not just make sure that you what you do at five or six billion works really well? Because then you shouldn't really have to worry about much more in life. So there is some. It's rare. I mean, I mean most well, most it, people most people let it ride. <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. Just as we say that trend following works because of human behavior and emotions and fear and greed and all that. I mean, we I kind of see the same thing um, within the industry, so to speak. There is definitely some of. Uh, some some greed here and there that that I mean uh, again I don't want to pick on any specific firm but you did talk about earlier today uh, one particular firm that kind of had meteoric asset raising you know uh, capabilities um, in a very short space of time I don't think that's healthy for any firm uh, to experience that kind of 
asset growth. So I'm kind of glad to be working for a 49-year-old overnight success story, um, so to speak. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think look, they, these, these people, people try to come up with these big, broad generalizations, right? Oh, there's replication, therefore people aren't going to invest in actual funds. I'm sorry, like, it's more fun to invest in actual funds. You know, people who go into the fund selection business like to select funds. They're not going away. You know, people who are at consulting firms who are telling their clients that they're going to find actual hedge funds are still going to invest in actual hedge funds. ETFs have been around for years. Index products have been around for 30 years. And they're a fraction of the active management space and the mutual fund space. Because people are human and there are advisors out there who, they're not, this isn't a cold exercise for them. They want to tell their clients and something that excites their clients that they're excited about. And, and look, we have what, a competitor in the US. It's totally rational. I think they are, I think they've marketed their success around flipping heads a couple of times. You know, What's not, a not, flipping not, heads. When you say flipping heads, what do you mean? Oh, by just that? luck luck going in your direction. Okay. Right? So so okay. their model was configured to be up a bit more than everybody else in March 2020. They had a very good 2021. Um, and then they had a bad 2022 and they're having a bad this year. But they but they had meteoric meteoric asset growth. But it's totally that asset growth was not a cold, rational decision. It's an incredible firm with a huge presence, with many, many great products. And so if I'm an allocator and you come to me with that fund that's done well, and I can see that as a compliment to other things that I have and a compliment, it's totally rational, rational and reasonable for me to do it with you. You're the, you're the sales guy. You're a human being. I've known you for 10 years. I love you when you come because I'm invested in your other products and they're great. And the business is, is, is built around that. And so diversity of products is very much about finding the products that fit for the right audience. The people who buy what we do, in general, I think in five years, will have very, very little overlap with the people who are buying it. I think we're going to find people who are coming into the space, who are investing with us, who've never invested with the space before, because they look at me and see somebody who kind of is like them. Except I'm, except I'm asking questions and I, and I work with quants who can run our own analysis. We'll, well see. we should never forget that people do business with people. Um, and uh, so that's a whole another uh, kind of worms we can talk about, which would be fun one day to talk about those kind of things as well. The softer side of, of, uh, of what we do. Andrew, this has been wonderful. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations. We don't always see eye to eye on things. And I love the fact that you allow me to probe into your into your uh, views and thoughts. And I actually think there's a, a there's, there's so much good stuff there. And uh, at the end of the day, there's room for everyone. And uh, I think both of us, we try to, uh, you know, promote the uh, the good stuff uh, that these strategies have grow, to offer. Grow the pie. Exactly. Yeah. We want to grow the pie. Andrew, thank you so much for today. If uh, if you, the listener, enjoy these conversations, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, wherever you listen to podcast, please leave a rating and review. It does help uh, the podcast and more people to discover it. Next week, as I mentioned, I'm joined by Nick Balters from Goldman Sachs. So that's always going to be uh, an academic uh, expedition into the world of systematic strategies. If you have any questions for Nick, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and I'll do my best to make sure we get an answer for you. From Andrew and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you Nick, next week. And in the meantime, as usual, 
take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.